Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast with me, David Badil, and I am incredibly excited to be doing my first Penguin Podcast with one of the greatest guitarists there's ever been and one of the greatest songwriters there's ever been, in my opinion, and my opinion is correct, Johnny Marr, who Thanks, has David. just written his autobiography, Set the Boy Free, which is also a cracking read, I have to say. I mean, I think of you, Johnny, as a man of music. I think, of, Honestly, I think of you as someone whose music just runs through you, but you're a man of words as well. You know, you're a man who's very well read from a very early age, and now you've written, you know, a really brilliantly written book and about your life. So why did you decide to do that now? Well, I got some offers about four years ago, so I knew the demand was there. Then I kind of put it off. I thought, OK, yeah, well, I like the idea of writing a book. That appealed to me, the process of writing a book and the challenge of it. I thought it'd be something to do, good to do in my life. I th- put it off for a couple of years and that gave me the time to sort of make some notes and kind of prepare myself so I wasn't totally prepared I mean I I started it kind of from scratch but now that I've done it I mean it's been put to me that it's a nice bit of happenstance that um, or coincidence that I've written an autobiography when I've got loads of other stuff going on or about to go on so it feels I'm glad that I've done it at a time when I still feel like my wheels are still spinning. I think I saw you being interviewed once where you said you were asked to write one very young is that right have I got that right? Yeah that's Um, right and and that's not probably a coincidence because of course stuff did happen to you very young I mean when I was reading this I, I mean, I, I probably knew it, but I didn't know it until I reread it. That yeah. Hand in Glove came out when you're 19. Is that right? Yeah, the first single came out. I was 19. Well, that, I mean, that, and that was immediately successful. And also, when I was reading it, you were knocking around bands in Manchester. You were a sort of hot property in Manchester as a guitarist even before that. Yeah. And so you are someone who you know musical success came to very young. And how, how looking back now, how do you feel about that? Well, looking back from the where I am now in my life, it's really surprising that the stuff that happened, even before success, things like going to my first show on my own at 12. Now I look back and it was this slaughtering the dogs show that I talk about yeah. in, in, in the book. I think 12. Hang on a minute. And that was You just, were 12 when you yeah. saw slaughtering the dogs? Yeah. Wow. And um, and on my own. What and were you that, doing out? So, well, that's that's that my point. A slightly dodgy gig. That's my point. Right, and that was my first ever show. I went on my own, and right. I came back on my own. I walked back from the Windsor Forum on my own. What year was that? Nineteen seventy-six. Nineteen seventy-six. Yeah. Right. So that's sort of the heart of also when glam rock and punk rock are all kind of exploding. So mm. it it would have been quite a lot of characters, for want of a better word, would have been at that gig. It was and very a, yeah. and the twelve-year-old boy. It was violent. Yeah, but the interesting thing was at the time. I wasn't frightened, and I, it wasn't anything out of the ordinary, right, at all. So, being so young, I mean, the phrase that, that's come to me really thinking about um, my early teenage years, my teenage years, right, even before the Smiths was was swashbuckling. Yeah, well, you get a sense of that. You are swashbuckling <laughs> your way through all these different bands. I mean, part is to do with Manchester at the time, isn't it? Manchester at the time post-punk is incredibly full of musical talent, isn't it? There's so mm. many people who are trying to set up bands and, you know, finding different people. You, you seem to sort of know everyone, everyone knows you from quite an early age. Yeah, particularly the area I grew up in. It was, it was uncanny how many musicians there were. My move from the um, inner city in the early 70s to the suburbs, to this period you're talking about, to this huge, massive, expansive council estate in South Manchester, 
I was in a place where there was just musicians everywhere. It was still very, very working class. Mm. And I've not ever since known of and certainly not experienced a similar situation because all these kids were, were very, very serious about it and they were very working class. Mm. That was kind of an interesting thing. And um, suddenly there was all these older guys who were walking the walk and showing me not how to carry yourself as a real guitar player and talk me seriously and everything. So that was who I was. That was who I was as a young teen. Mm. With all of that came, well, well, of course we're going to go and see that gig. Mm. Of course we're going to go and see that gig. Well, how are we going to go and see that gig? I'm 13. Well, we just break in the back doors. Right. You just go. You just go and do it. Yeah, yeah. So it was pretty great. It was really great. Since you're talking about, you know, coming out of childhood and, you know, becoming a teenager and finding out who you are through music, uh, let's go to the first audio book clip from Set the Boy Free, uh, which is a clip of you talking sort of when you first noticed music in your house when you were really, really young. One morning I was in our back room, sitting on the floor and messing around with some toys when my mum dashed in with my Aunt May. There was a dance set record player on a cupboard and I watched them hovering over it excitedly as my mum put on a 45 RPM record with a red label. The record dropped onto the turntable and I heard a simple guitar figure as Walk Right Back by the Everly Brothers started to play. I watched the two women closely while they shared the song and I saw my mother as a music fan. I loved the sheer joy they took in playing the record. When it was finished they pressed the switch again and the song started over. They continued playing it pointing out bits and singing along until I knew all of the song myself. I'd never seen anyone playing the same record over and over again and I'd never seen anyone identifying bits of the music as it played. It was an infectious pop song with a cheerful sound and great voices but the best thing to me about the Everly Brothers record was the loud guitar hook. After that I listened for the same thing on every record I heard. One thing I noticed about the early part of the book is there's music in your life quite early on and you're talking about the Everly Brothers there, which obviously is a kind of early pop sensibility, but you also talk in the book about having a kind of Irish ballad folk sensibility. One thing I really noticed was you talk about your Auntie Anne having a way of singing that was tinged with sadness. And I was very interested in that musically because I think one thing you do always do beautifully is even when you're doing an upbeat song, you you use minor chords. You are a man who knows how melancholy can also really make yeah. a song interesting. And I wondered if maybe that was to do with that background. I think it's entirely to do with that background. It always stuck in my mind about my auntie Anne singing because she was young. She was a she would have been sixteen or seventeen, and I would have was a little kid sat on the floor. And these house parties would happen, in my memory, two or three times a week. It didn't matter whether it was a Monday or a Wednesday or whatever. All my relatives were really young, and a lot of relatives. Yeah, big family, all very young Irish. So when it came the time for my dad's youngest sister, who I'm looking up at, this very fashionable. 16, 17-year-old. It got to that point in the evening, she sings a sad song. She's very pretty. I'm this little kid. And that melancholy in those... There's one like... Black Velvet Black, Band. Black Velvet Band, which yeah. is sort of kind of known by the Dubliners, potentially, yeah. but essentially. But um, that melody is so, so lilting and, and melancholic. I think it spoke to me anyway. I think there was something in me, this poetic kind of sensibility or... Awareness of sadness, yeah, I think. Well, there's a sensitivity, as you say. I yeah. mean, it's interesting that, obviously, he's a mate of yours and I love him too, but the sort of Gallagher mentality of, of being a Mancunian rock star mm. is, is pretty macho, and yours isn't so macho, I don't think. You're no. prepared to 
accept about yourself that there's something romantic and poetic and lyrical. Yeah. And I've always felt that in your music, but it may be to do with this background. I think so. Um, I've been a very young mother who was I was very, very tight with, like a friend in a way. Mm. And the way she behaved was, and still does, bless her, is it's very exuberant. And um, the clip that uh, we just heard of her and my May rushing in with a record and me noticing the colour of the label and then playing that, that Everly Brothers record. Whenever I've thought back to that moment, when I was looking at my mother, I saw her being young and exuberant, but I saw her that way all the time. Mm. It was mostly because she was always playing music and she's like a, she was a, like a teenage music fan, yeah. Irish teenage music fan. I mean, she did her own charts, her own pop charts. Right. So it was a little bit of copied behaviour. But also that closeness with your mother is an interesting thing as well. I think that's quite, as you said, kind of an unmacho thing to talk about, is being close to your mother. And I've just done this show recently in which I talk about my mum a lot. And actually blokes often don't talk that much about their their mothers. They talk about their more dad base if they're going to talk about their family. Well, I mean, I know it's skipping skipping really far ahead, but I'm actually very proud uh, of the fact that my generation of teenage men, boys, bands, the Smiths, Billy Bragg, mm. all these people, we had, we are absolutely completely in touch with that. Mm. I only noticed that about my generation of British men because it got lost somewhere along the way. Yeah, you know, I mean, if you were part of a the alternative scene, you were non-macho. Yeah, non-macho. Macho yeah. was out. Yeah, yeah, it was out. Can we move yeah. on to your first object? Because that I think ties into what you're saying. Yeah, the, the first object I've brought along is uh, it's a record. It's a forty-five. Well, it's Jeepster by T-Rex, mm. um, which was the first record I ever bought with my own money. I think my one was Devil Woman by Cliff Richard. I'm omitting that now. Yours is cooler. I'm <laughs> sorry. I can now, but you can see, when I explain, I know mine was really cool. Yeah. But the reason why I bought this was because it had been a hit some time before, and that's why I was able to afford it, because I was flicking through this the, the bargain bin in an elect- electrical shop, so it sold record players and all of that business and washing machines and everything. So they sold records to play on the record players. And there was a shoebox full of these X-Chart singles and I was flipping through it, flipping through it, and I came across this record and the label on it has got a photograph of this really enigmatic pair of fellas, which is T-Rex, Mark Bolan, mm. and he's got makeup on and he looks super androgynous. Yeah. And I just kind of... I was taken by the photograph and the fact that he was androgynous... And very weird looking to me at nine. And I also thought, well, OK, I've got this money. I just thought, well, I'll buy the one with a picture on it because right. I'll get more bang for my book. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, the look is very important. One thing you do talk about in the book quite a lot is clothes. More, yeah. more than I would realise. You worked in clothes shops and oh, you yeah. always cared about clothes. Yeah. But then if you tune into Mark Bolan, it isn't just about the music, is it? It's also about the fact that he's incredible looking bloke i mean unbelievably yeah. interesting looking pretty and beautiful and the sort of contrast of that les paul with the long curly hair you know all that is in there as well isn't it well pop music and art and culture but particularly pop music sends out a lot of coded signals mm. it's one of the things that makes it so powerful yeah all, what you've just described is exactly it yeah and, and then i put it on the record player and for a nine-year-old boy it was immediately Weird, yeah, because it was a little unpolished. Yeah, all of the stuff that I was hearing on the radio uh, was polished pop music, and even though this had been a hit, I'd, I'd not heard this before. 
it had this. It sounds well, it sounds like a blues record. Yeah. I mean, it's in fact now, I now know the riff itself is lifted from a Howling Wolf record, but it has a blues sound. And the feeling about it was, I owned it. I was gonna. I was sort of invested in it anyway. Yeah. And uh, luckily, it just pulled me right in. I think we're going to go to another clip because I'm very interested in the fact that he was also a guitarist, Bolan. That obviously he was a, he was a consummate pop star, and you know him and Bowie obviously together kind of created a whole new type of rock and ideas about what rock music could be in the seventies. But and I'm, I'm Bowie is my god. But one thing Bowie it wasn't particularly was a guitarist, and Bolan I do think of was always That's with right. the guitar. So let's let's talk about guitars, but through this audio clip that we're going to listen to now. I saw my first electric guitar in the Midway pub on Stockport Road in Longsight. The pub had a big room at the top where we used to go for parties, and Betty would hire her friend's band, the Sweeney's, to play. The parties at the Midway were great. The adults treated it as a big night, and everyone was dressed up in the new fashions. At the start of the night, the room would be practically empty, as most people would be in the pub downstairs. Me and Claire would hang around upstairs waiting for the band to arrive, drinking fizz with our cousins Dennis and Anne, while the Israelites by Desmond Decker and Baby Come Back by the Equals played to the coloured lights. When the band arrived, I'd watch them carrying their instruments up the stairs and then set up their equipment on the stage, waiting for the big moment when the guitar player went over to his case and took out his Fiesta Red Stratocaster. It was the most valuable-looking thing I'd ever seen. Beautiful and shiny and contoured. It was better than a car, better than a jukebox, better than anything. Watching the band getting ready to play was amazing to me. It seemed like quite a serious business getting everything working right, and because they were grown-ups it appeared to be a job, a profession. And if that was a profession, why would anyone ever want to do anything else? I love that thing you say about it feeling like the most valuable thing you'd ever seen the guitar, because I remember that very much from when I was a teenager, just falling in love with guitars, like the only animate object that I could fall in love with. I mean, I was obsessed with girls, but then there was something similar, to be honest, something sexual, something yeah. lustful, and something divine about the way that I would look at guitars. And you really, I really feel that in the way you write that sentence. Oh, I'm glad about that, yeah. That's interesting, the... Um you make that connection between a guitar and a, and a girl. Because it's been mentioned a few times before, you know, that uh, the feminine contours mm. of the of a guitar and the, they are very... not. It's not an accident that they're very sensual-looking objects. Yeah. And there's no denying it. And I don't mind saying, I'm old enough now to be able to say it with actual uh, conviction, girls like guitars yeah, yeah, too. Yeah. So, because I think they recognise also that they're beautiful objects. Yeah. But, uh, and you can fetishise them. Definitely. Which, which I did. And uh, it's, it's interesting talking about it. Those passages of the book uh, <laughs> were great to write. Mm. I was writing that stuff with real passion. Mm. Almost, yeah. almost reliving it. Mm. And it's quite interesting that I still have, when I think about it, that, that, that feeling... Is um, I don't know whether visceral is the right word, but the physical feeling of it is, I can really still remember it, and I can still feel it in, mm. in a way. But it's about what you don't talk that much. If, I'm, if I got this right, I'm correct me if I'm wrong. But about what they were actually playing, it's sort of more seeing the guitar and realizing this could be a job. This could be. Yeah. This is a way of living. That's, yeah. That, that, that comes to you like an epiphany. Because this band had played at a few of our get-togethers, because simply. Because there were so many little cousins knocking around, mm. 
babies being born every every few minutes, yeah. and there, so therefore there were some weddings, not necessarily yeah. in that order. Yeah. As a very little boy, I would have just heard the sound of a real band playing. As a young kid, these grown-ups, I was already sold on the mute, on the instruments and these these guys, but I watched like this. All oh, right, they set up their gear, and these are men setting up their tools of work. Mm. And I made that connection that mm. it looked like a profession. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I yeah. think that's a very working class thing to do. I mean, in a very positive way. Sure. It's like, right, how do I connect this to actually how you live your life every day? Absolutely, you yeah. Know? And if it's, uh, I didn't assume that they weren't getting paid for it. It looked yeah. professional. Yeah. We're going to have to move on to the next object. Yeah. But just before we do, there's a piece of the jigsaw that I really want to know about. Uh, which I can't now remember, from, but but which is when you actually got your first guitar and started playing the guitar. I'm interested in how quickly you presume you taught yourself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How quickly did it come to you? It came to me really quickly. It was a matter of a couple of weeks, right? From getting my first acoustic, which I actually didn't go into. It was the one thing. Yeah, that I, I don't didn't... remember. I'm right. Aren't yeah, I? I, you are right. Yeah. I didn't go into it in the book just because. It's in every other guitar player's right. book, and I couldn't find a way of writing it without being cliched. So how I how I put it in the book was that when I get Jeepster, the B side, "Life's a Gas," which is going back to the other object, was uh, made up of chords that I'd already been learning. I'd got this acoustic, decent acoustic, when I was eight, and my dad took me to buy in the shop. What was it? It was, you know, I don't know. It was some type of crappy make, but yeah. compared to the the little toy one that I'd had for ages that I was really persevering with, yeah. but wouldn't stay in tune, and I'd already I'd painted it white to look like an electric. This one was I could get a tune out of, and so I'd learn a few hold hold a few chords down, and then I could play D, and then Hey Presto, Life's a Gas is in D, so I started to learn that, and it took me a few weeks to two weeks I think of constant playing to be able to play the whole song, work out the chords. Your next object is a book, um, and this is one of the things I said at the start, is that you are, more than perhaps people realise, you know, a man of words. Well, just tell people oh, about yeah. why you brought this in, because I think it will surprise people. Yeah, well, I brought in um, Complete Essays by Aldous Huxley. I discovered Aldous Huxley, I guess, in my mid-30s, because I, I was reading a lot of Carl Jung, hmm. and um, Aldous Huxley's name kept coming up. And also, I got interested in, in um, theology. You talk in the book quite a lot about reading as a kid, going to bookshops. Yeah. You know, because you talk about going to record shops and clothes shops, but then you, you spend a lot of time in second-hand bookshops. That's right, um, yeah. And were you reading stuff like this from an early age, or what were you reading then? Well, when I went to grammar school, I got into T.S. Eliot and Dylan Thomas, actually, and then, actually... My reading really got good when I started to bunk off school. Right. Because I used yeah. to go into Central Library and I used to read the newspapers quite a lot. Right. And then as a teenager, got a little bit into D.H. Lawrence, which was uh, where I first heard about Aldous Huxley. Mm. And particularly Burroughs, because the covers looked just looked so freaky. Yeah. And then I discovered the beats. The big thing for me, and I was that I don't know whether someone had mentioned it, but it was, um, was Kerouac and um, how I got into Kerouac was, was through, uh, I guess, was through... A Hunter S. Thompson, really, right, right. really. So it's kind. Of, there's an element of sort of a lifestyle thing emerging, isn't there? Of a kind oh, yeah, of, sort of beatnik, kind of you know, slightly hippie-ish idea, or certainly an alternative way of outsider, yeah, an outsider culture and a different way of living your life. I mean, one thing that seems amazing to me a little bit is you know you came from a tough 
background. You know, it was tin bath, all that stuff. Uh, and you did help your dad at one point lay some piping in a row, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. And that's it, though. You never do a, a day's work in your life, proper day's work. I mean, I'm the same. I've never done a proper job apart from I had a week knocking down a wall once. And I thought, <laughs> I never want to do this again. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. Uh, and But you, it seems to be quite easy at some level for you not to do that. Yeah. And I'm interested in that because your family background must have been quite forgiving. Then there was not, there wasn't a family background that said, "No, no, no, this is all rubbish, all this, all this hippie nonsense, all this music. You want to, you want to pick up a shovel." There was none of that. What happened, I think, really, like a lot of people would be able to relate to this, but particularly my generation, because the times are very different now, was that when I got to 13 and 14, and my parents were like, "Oh, right, he's really, really serious about this," that then there was friction right big time friction because they thought well uh this he's headed for disaster and it was a protective thing it wasn't mm. like they wanted to stump all over my dreams which is how i took it mm, at the time you know they were just really worried that i was going to end up on the slag heap you mm. know and it's all very well they were quite proud being big fans of music that i was you know I had a facility for the guitar and they could hear that i had a knack for it i think they they liked that but they never for a minute my family never thought coming from the country in Ireland that I was actually going to end up on top of the pops. Yeah, but you, uh, but, yeah. You, you, but they didn't kind of really force you to stop doing it. And the, there was no, like, we're going to take the guitar away. It was nothing like that. No, because we just got into a massive standoff about it. Right. My sensibility was mirrored by the sort of rebellious nature of rock music and then it punk and all of that. But I also learned how to behave from that message. Well, let, let's listen to a clip of, of your parting, which seems to fit into what you've just saying. You, when you started going to a lot of parties when you were about 15 and 16 and see what happened there. The party was just getting into the swing of things. I wandered around for a few minutes before settling on a couch in the main room where Blondie's new LP, Parallel Lines, was playing. I sank down next to my drummer and in a few seconds something happened that was to be the most important moment of my life. Across the room I noticed a girl standing side on. I was stunned by how pretty she was, and just like a movie the rest of the room appeared to freeze and I saw a glow around her. All I could think was, you have found her. It was a total knowing. I turned to Bobby and said, I'm going to marry that girl. It's amazing how the course of your life can change within a few seconds. One moment things are as normal, and then a phone call, a meeting, destiny or fate and everything is different from then on. I locked into that moment. I had to talk to her and hoped she'd want to talk to me. I can't remember what I said at first because I wasn't hearing myself speak. I was fascinated by her. She was so beautiful and assured and so totally cool. I could tell she was younger than me, and after saying something, I asked when her birthday was. She told me it was in October. What date, I asked her. 31st, Halloween, she said. What? We're born on the same day. I thought it was beyond a boy and a girl. It was soul to soul. So you met your wife when you were 15 yeah. at a party. Yeah. That, that's amazing. And do you think it might be one of the reasons why you didn't go off the rails? Because it sounds to me like from what you were saying, maybe you might have done. Oh, and, yeah. And then suddenly this rock appears. She stopped me going off the rails several times later on, particularly in, during the days of fame, young fame and, you know behaviour on the road and drugs and, you know, and on and on it went, as you can imagine. But, you know, as corny as it sounds, but, you know, she made me brave. She was fearless and dangerous and adventurous, uh, but very, very smart. Mm. 
And uh, it's lasted, John. I'm going to have to... I mean, that yeah. is unusual in rock and roll. I yeah. mean, it's really lasted. And w- what's the secret? Knowing you're lucky. Hmm. And uh, honouring it, I think. You know, I've said it before, but uh, there's no other way of saying it. It's the smartest thing that I've done. And, and that can sound glib and all of that and coy or whatever, but... Uh, I think that's the secret. It's like. also quite romantic, though, which I think is... <laughs> yeah. No, but that's important, because yeah. uh, I think of you and your music as sort of romantic, you know, in a oh, kind good. of urban... I don't mean urban in the modern sense. I mean, yeah. in like, Mancunian or whatever. Oh, good. But it's always had a kind of, you know, and not just the Smiths, like... I, I was listening to Dusk, because I read about it in your book, not an album I knew, by The The... And it's so beautiful. Oh, good, uh, yeah. And a lot of the guitar work and the harmonica on it is really beautiful. And I think whatever it is in you that makes that music has got to come out as well in other types of romantic behaviour. Well, I, I'm really happy about that. There's a bit in the book, really, that's so simplistic, but I think is exactly what you're talking about, is when I talk about my mum and dad going out to the clubs and when she gives me a kiss to go out, I, I smell a perfume. Yeah. And it's beautiful, um, that bit. I'm glad that you noticed that because that says a lot, really, yeah. to me. That I've, and I want, I thought, if other people can relate to that, it's, it's such a nice thing, and it always stuck with me. But um, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's in the music, and um, over the years, as you can imagine, many, many people have asked me about why the music has endured, and obviously, particularly about the Smiths. And I think I know what they're talking about. And so I'm glad. I'm really happy that that comes across in the book. Can we move on to something that's lying on the table that I've just yeah. been thinking about nabbing while you've been talking, um, which is a £20 note. Why have you brought in a £20 note? I know, because I've read the book, but yeah. I'm, I'd still like you to tell the listeners. The reason I've got this £20 note is because uh, fans know this about me. I always have to have a £20 note in the back right-hand pocket when I play concerts or when I'm doing anything in public or as a, as a superstition. Mm. There's a chapter in the book where the Smiths are starting to just get well-known in... Uh, our ascent was fairly rapid once we got our wheels on, really. But I started to get nervous after about our seventh or eighth gig. The reason for that was because when you go out, you might know about this, but when you go out and you, you're feeling like your back's against the wall and people are stood at the bar and not really listening and chatting and all of that, you've mm. got, you, have, you get, grow a bit of attitude. Mm. You kind of think, hey, listen, mate, hang mm. on a minute, hang on a minute. But what happened with the Smiths was that we got flipped to being the great new white hope very, very quickly. And I was only, I think I was still, I would have been, yeah, 19 then. It robbed me of my cockiness. Right. I was like, shit. Yeah. Uh-oh. We're occupying a space here. It's a responsibility. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you would, because you would think that ordinarily, suddenly being uh, praised from all sides would give you more ego. Mm. But in my case, I just put myself under more scrutiny. And also because of guitar culture being what it is, I just thought, oh, my God, all of these people are expecting me to be this great new guitar hero. And, but I don't play solos. I don't play with distortion. I do this weird thing. Mm. And I was being... Anyway, so where the £20 note comes in is because um, I just got this notion before we went on stage one night at Dingwalls that you're on the way up. You should be feeling lucky. But I, was, I had no money in my pocket. Yeah. So I thought, come on, you, you've got to feel a bit more regal. <laughs> that was uh, that was my that was where it's coming from. But was it was it a tenner first of all? So yeah, I went to the manager, I went to Joe, and I said, Joe, have you got any money? I need to, what for? You know, he's the manager. I said, I need to feel lucky. <laughs> so he he looked at me, you know, idiot. So anyway, he gave me a ten pound note and I put it in my back pocket. Yeah. 
And lo and behold, it was the first of our great ever gigs. When did it get upgraded to a 20? It got upgraded to a 20 when um, I walked out on stage at the Oakland Coliseum with, <laughs> with the Pretenders, opening for you two to 90,000 people. As I walked out, it occurred to me that a tenor... Yeah, won't do the job. No, I need to, I need to upgrade, so I stuck $20 in my pocket. Just a tad superstitious, Johnny. Yeah. <laughs> um, all, the, all the bands that I've been, know, been in, know, as I do a lot of people, and everybody now, knows about the superstition. And when I was in the cribs, they were you know, sort of raising their eyebrows about it. And we were just about to go on stage somewhere at a massive festival, and um, just about go on, I didn't have my money with me, and everyone went, I said, listen, it doesn't matter, it's a stupid superstition. And just at that moment, Gary from the cribs walked onto the side of the stage and he completely crashed down and banged his hand on a screw on the stage. And his hand came up like a whelk. So everybody just then believed in that 20 quid. Did you get the money? Of course I got the money, yeah. <laughs> Great news. I do want to talk about the Smiths. And, yeah. Uh, it's such an extraordinary thing to meet someone like Morrissey with your particular lyrical yearnings and everything we've been talking about, your sensitivity and your romanticism, to find someone who can, you know, play off that in a very extraordinary way. And you talk about that in this next clip. I looked at the next lot of lyrics for a song called Suffer Little Children, and as I sat cross-legged on the floor with my guitar and the two sheets of paper at my feet, I pressed record. As I looked down at the words again, my hand started to play a tune. Something was happening. The song was coming through the ether. I kept going with the verse and Morrissey started singing along, the words and story appearing in my eyes and my mind. I followed the momentum as my guitar delivered the music under the voice and the song was suddenly all there. A song that didn't sound like anyone else and didn't feel like anyone else. A song about the Moors murderers. I didn't know what to make of it. All I knew was how it felt and it felt strangely true. My emotions were hanging in the air and I was just following the moment. I picked up a small musical box that was lying in the room, wound it up and went over to the window. I held the music box out of the window as it played its melody and in the other hand I held a microphone and recorded it along with the sound of the kids playing. Apart from the surprise of being presented with such unexpected words, there was one sentiment about coming from the north in that second song that caught my attention more than anything else and it defined an aspect of us from that first day of us working together. It said to me, we do things differently. Morrissey and I had started our partnership and whatever it was that we had, it was ours and was totally unique. We were two people who had already dedicated most of our young lives to becoming who we wanted to be. We'd both worked obsessively on what we were doing in a way that no one else around us could come close to, and we recognised in each other the same commitment and emotional need to follow our visions. We were different personalities and opposites in many ways, but the things that we had in common created an exclusive bond. We'd both chosen a life of total immersion in our passions and an intense romanticism about pop culture, and when we came together we both thought that it just had to be destiny. One of the things that reminds me of is Brian Wilson in his autobiography talks about Elton John coming to his uh, studio and playing him your song and a couple of other songs, and he says he was tapped into the great source. He knew then, he says, he was tapped into the great source, and I do think and I'm probably not as uh, spiritual in a way as you, because you seem to be quite a spiritual guy, but I do think that music and melody, that's a good analogy for it. There are some people who at some points are absolutely in tune with some organic connection with melody. And the fact that you wrote those songs, I mean, that song, and you talk in the, in the book also about writing This Charming Man in minutes, it must have just been flowing through you at that 
time. Yeah. I mean, do you have a sense of that? Yeah. I was high on the promise of what this relationship could be, on the potential of it. But the potential to do something great, I just thought, this guy's amazing. And I got the feeling that he thought I was too, you know. Try not to sound too immodest, but uh, we both made each other feel that way. Oh, wow. And that high, something that happens to you through the high is you hear music. Am I am I right in yeah. saying that? Yeah, but it does help to have a guitar in your hand and, and be like, I'm not going out to the pub tonight or the game or whatever. You know, I think if it was happening a lot, I'd be doing it every day. Yeah. So um, I do hear it. And um, and there are other times when you're just banging your head trying to come up with a, a, a B-side or something like that. One but- of the things that interests me, though, about that is I think, and again, it probably really helped that you'd gone to all these bookshops and were into all that stuff, I think most people, if they'd seen Morrissey's lyrics, especially Suffer Little Children, which is about the Moors murderers, would have thought, what's this? This isn't a pop song. It's not about love. It's about something grim and complicated and difficult. And yeah. he's also, you know, the, just the structure and the rhythms of them are not, you know, normal in terms of pop songs. And yet, you didn't stop to worry about that. You immediately melody came to you seeing these lyrics. Yeah, it was a weird moment and also quite unusual because it was very rare that, if ever, again, that I put the music to the words. Right, it was always the other way round. So that is interesting to me because I, I've often thought that. Uh, I didn't have that facility, but that happened then and it happened on the the other song that I talk about in that same chapter, Hand That Rocks the Cradle. They were the first two songs we wrote. We got together in my attic for our first songwriting session. We'd only actually physically met once before when I went and knocked on his door. But um, I wasn't going to write my autobiography and not describe that in detail. I can remember it very, very vividly now. It would have been a... I want to use the word esoteric, but a very unusual and inspired kind of atmosphere anyway. But the fact that the words were about the Moors murderers is particularly weird. Mm. It didn't trouble you at any point, though. You just went with it. Yeah, I, I went with it. Um, I mean, no, great that you did. I mean, yeah, I, I, no, I, I, agree, I just yeah. think it's... But I just think it's really interesting that you didn't say, actually, should we start with something that isn't quite so, you know, complicated? Yeah. At that moment, and it was the, so it was the first couple of songs that were our first songwriting session... I went, okay, we are going to do something very, very different. And I took a leap of faith in a way. There was no holding back, Mm. absolutely no holding back. I think it was partly because I was young as well. I would never do that now Mm. because the moment felt beautiful. I think that was what it was. And I trusted in it. I didn't have any kind of critical analysis of it. (laughs) And again, using that word high, we thought high on this opportunity it was the first time that he and I had this opportunity to start this thing off. Had you heard Morrissey sing by that time? Well, he'd given me a cassette a couple of days before of him singing very, very quietly this unaccompanied song. So I heard his voice and it was not what I was expecting. Did you just go with that? Did you just think, OK, this guy's got a really unusual voice, but it really fits with what I'm doing? Did you feel that straight away? I did think it was an unusual voice, but... Also, the times being what they were, this was 1982 in Mm. Manchester, it was the nascent stirrings of what then became indie. So there were people like Joseph Kay, Paul Haig, and it was a time when some singers sang in baritone, Mm. Simon Topping from a certain ratio. Mm. People were, like as was the case with guitar playing, 
the currency of the day was so no rockist, and it, that was pol political also. No macho posturing, no blues inflections, no overt rock sounds, no really no delays. It was very very minimalist, and you can apply the same to a vocal technique. Mm. It was a very austere, yeah, um, aesthetic. And it was in the music and it was in the way we presented ourselves. And our early songs were quite, had that feeling. It was uh, quite, not oppressive, but it was quite gloomy sounding. Mm. And and we sort of threw off those shackles. Mm. It's quite interesting mm. that um, in terms of the way we sounded with this charming man. And then the, once we'd broken through that, we then were able to become ourselves, really. The guitar playing became ever more exuberant. And Morris's singing started to get in a different place and he then started to really, really soar. Really soar. So, um, you know... By the time he's yodelling on the boy with the thorn in his side, yeah. you're thinking, like, this is kind of incredible confidence to go with something really weird and unusual. So partly, to be sim simplistic about it, I can't speak for him, but this is what I was thinking. We sounded like a sort of very unfunky Manchester band. It was very of the times. Um, one thing I thought was incredible was you then very quickly get it together with rough trade you you know you get the demos down brilliantly you force them on jeff travis fantastically and then i think your first single is hand in glove is that yeah. right uh and then soon after that you're on top of the pops and you get back to manchester and you're playing the hacienda and there's two thousand or more people outside with flowers and bees i mean it happens incredibly quickly yeah and, yeah. and this is the dullest question in the world, but I'm going to have to ask you, how did it feel? How did it feel to suddenly be in one of the biggest, the hottest band in the country? Well, I knew about, from being such a fan and, a, you know, kind of an expert and train spotter, I knew sort of what it meant to, mm. to be a, to, for a new guitar band to have arrived. And the thing was, I really loved my role, aside from just needing to express myself I thought this is a job I, I think I know how to do mm. to get national fame of that sort at 19 is very very young but if ever there was a 19 year old and a what 24 year old who were ready for it if that is a, a thing it was me it was me and Morrissey mm. because we've been in sort of so obsessive about it before and so it, it absolutely felt amazing when you asked me about when we played the Hacienda we played Top of the Pops we bolted it up there's the two things that and they're in the book that um, come to my mind anyway, that sum that moment up. One is the delight and glee of everybody's families who were in the dressing room and the total bemusement. They came, we'd been on top of the pops, and it was like everybody had won the pools. Mm. So I saw that reflected back. Mm. And it was interesting because I was sort of, my mind was still on I had to play a show. But then I go out and we play the show and bodies on all over the stage and all you know it really did feel like homecoming heroes. We were made to feel that way. Part of it also was the infectious sound of this charming man, because mm. it was just this, this tune that everybody loved. So mm. that was happening. Um, but it was that thing where I was playing and about five feet away from me or five people away or whatever for pretty much the whole gig was this delirious guy on his mate's shoulders with his shirt off, absolutely hysterical. And I worked out after a few songs because he was trying to get to me. It was someone who'd been one of my mates. I remember that bit in the book, yeah. That must be amazing. And that was really so weird. Yeah. It sort of says I've, I'm on a different planet now, yeah. doesn't it, in a very real way. 
It did, yeah. And I, you know, I almost felt like slapping him. <laughs> what are you doing? Not behave you, not, yourself. Not that you weren't against doing that occasionally with your guitar <laughs> from time to time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. I'm still frightened when I got to New York. <laughs> Johnny, there's like a thousand other things I want to ask you, but sure. uh, time is running out. So I really want to end by talking about the thing that I think is still probably most central in your in your life, apart from your wife and kids, and that is the guitar. Um, yeah. And we talked very early on about the incredible sort of dreamlike, sometimes fetishization, sometimes sort of divine object that those things can be when you're into them, and you've created your own guitar. Yeah, I mean, I'm, it's still amazing to me that... Um, I've had the opportunity to have a Fender Johnny Marr guitar that's named after me, you know. Um, and I'm glad that I, I'm, I'm not so sort of long in the tooth that uh, that isn't amazing to me, you mm. know. Um, it is amazing. It is, yeah. yeah it's really uh, amazing. Yeah, uh, it's, it's such an achievement. Was it your idea to go for the Jaguar? Yeah, my uh, thing with the Jaguar is, is that uh, when I went to Portland to play with Modest Mouse, the first night I was there, I had, uh, had another one of those experiences where I thought, that guitar looks amazing. It was covered with dust. But, um, and I needed it to compete with our leader, Isaac Brock's volume, so I picked up this Jaguar. I, I had a Telecaster at the time and picked up the Jaguar and um, immediately, I'll sort of demonstrate real quick, but um, uh, I, went, I was over there to play with, you know, with this band that I'd never met before and I picked up the Jag and Isaac said, have you got any riffs? You know, I mean, this is so, and it kind of could be a weird situation, but I've been doing it since being 14 where I meet a stranger and they say, sort of go, have you got any riffs? You know, mm. so... Um, I had this. I did have a riff that I'd been kicking around for a while, but there was something about the jag made me play it differently. Originally, I was I was playing something like something along those lines, kind of smithy. But um, when I picked up the jag, I played it like a. This sort of very infectious. It just felt like really upbeat. Isaac jumped on it, so he just basically came out with this stream of lyrics that were just really utterly brilliant. And then, um, cut a long story short, it became you know, with this huge hit. And, and um, so the Jaguar was it was a an auspicious. So you played that start. with Modest Mouse. Yeah, I played that because that, that was a number one American album, wasn't it? The it Modest was, Mouse yeah. album. Yeah, and that song Dashboard. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't have played it that way if it hadn't been the Jag. So that started the journey with the Jag, but I started to play the Jaguar. And I realised that... Um, it sounded like how I think I'm supposed to sound and how mm. people expect me to sound. I, th I kind of thought, God, I wish I'd had one of those when I was in the Smiths, because it's a Smiths machine in a way. Yeah. And, um, it's a kind of very ringing, full, yearning yeah. sound, isn't it? I thought, oh, my God, this Jag is fantastic. So through my whole time with Modest Mouse, I got really into the Jags. Now, the old original 60s Jags had a lot of uh, things about the design that I, I would call unwanted conditions. They had too many switches on and too many knobs and stuff like that. And I loved the way they looked, but I wanted to improve it. So whilst I was in Modest Mouse, I started to knock my own up. And um, and then Fender heard about it, and they said to me, look, do you want to do a, a Fender Johnny Marr guitar? And I said, well, I'm doing it. So you designed it, like, how did you design it? With drawings? I had a, an old one, and I kept buying old ones. I mean, Angie said to me, do you have to buy every Jaguar in the world? You do buy That's, a lot of guitars throughout said, the book. Yes, throughout the book, yeah. I thought, this man's got a little bit of an addiction problem with it, buying guitars. David, but the thing was, they were so cheap. Right. Uh, in my defence, they were so cheap. And what I did was, now me and my the guy 
who fixes up my guitars in London, we just started taking them to bits and redesigning them. So he, we took the switches off and changed a lot of aspects of the original one. And I had a, my own prototype that I built right. with my friend Bill. And um, I would go out on the road and play it with Modest Mouse and put it through all its paces. And then I'd go back after 20 gigs and say, I don't really like the neck and oh, we need to change the pickups and all these aspects of it. I won't get too, too boringly technical. Until I eventually, over a number of years, it's three years and I, it was, I was in the cribs by the time I finished it. Yeah. I ended up with what I thought was perfect that me and my, my guitar guy had, had come up with. And then Fender, true to their word, said, we will make the Johnny Mark Jag exactly to the very last screw on it, right. exactly the same as yours, and then we will sell it. That's brilliant. I'm glad that uh, I've written my book and I'm still the most important relationship, as you said, you know, besides my wife and family, that I have in the world really is... is still with a guitar yeah it's a beautiful guitar i'm going to slightly ruin it now because i picked up my guitar you look nervous i was wondering i am nervous yeah um shows you come on let's do it well because i thought i can't be with johnny marr who is one of my guitar heroes without showing him that i can play the guitar and i have frank skinner bought me because it's a blue color and i support chelsea he bought me a flying v which is a lovely guitar it's gibson but it's almost impossible in a podcast studio to rest on your knee (laughs) despite that i'm gonna do something now embarrassing is the volume up is, it, is the volume up? Yeah, it is. Okay, so what are you going to play, David? You might recognise this one, Johnny. Johnny showed me the chords to this charming man, and they're quite easy chords, but the rhythm is typically Johnny Mark creative and inventive and therefore a bit difficult for me. Come on, let's do Shall it. Shall we have a go? Yeah, let's do it. One, okay, you're going to nod. two, three, four... That was pretty good. One of the best moments of my life, ladies and gentlemen. That was pretty good. I don't good. care what you think of the rest of the podcast. I'm happy with that. <laughs> Johnny Marr, thank you very, very much. Thank you, David. Thank you for writing the book. Thank you for playing guitar with me. Thank you for being you. For all the latest information about the Penguin Podcast, you can follow at Penguin UK Books. Check us out on Facebook to see pictures of all the objects we've chatted about today and to see who else will be popping into the Penguin studio soon. Phil Collins is one of only three recording artists who have sold over 100 million albums, both as solo artists and separately as principal members of a band, the other two being Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson. In his memoir, Not Dead Yet, Phil talks about his life and the highs and lows of his career and about working with other rock legends, from Eric Clapton to Robert Plant. Not Dead Yet will thrill fans and change minds. This book is my truth about things. The stuff that happened, the stuff that didn't happen. There are no scores settled, but there are some wrongs righted. When I went back there looking at my past, for sure there were surprises. How much I'd worked, for one thing. If you can remember the 70s, you clearly weren't on as many Genesis tours as me, Tony Banks, Peter Gabriel, Steve Hackett and Mike Rutherford. And if you can remember the 80s, 
well, I'm sorry about me and Live Aid. It's 2016 and we've lost many of my peers, so I've had cause to reflect on my mortality, my frailties, but also, courtesy of my children, I've had to think about my future. Not deaf yet, not dead yet. Not dead yet. Available now on iTunes and Audible.